Good morning. Picture in your mind a scene in a far-off ancient land. There's a military encampment with soldiers sleeping among the rocks and in the caves of a mountainous, unforgiving landscape. The general was out of his tent, enjoying the early morning air. Several of his most accomplished warriors hurried up to him and offered him a goatskin bag full of liquid. We slipped away last night, they confessed, grinning as they talked. We broke through the enemy lines in order to get the water you wanted from the well in your hometown. The general seemed touched as he took the bag, but looked lost in thought for a minute or two. Then he took a few steps away and astonished everyone by pouring the water on the ground. We're going to finish this story a little later. But let's back up for now and set the stage for getting to it and understanding it. We're going to talk this morning about the will of God. Uh, The subject of the will of God is broad, so there are potentially many dimensions of it we can discuss. I want to talk about the personal side of it, that part of the will of God, the part that we experience Uh, the will of God and that he has for each of us individually and how things can sidetrack us or detract us from pursuing that. There are several powerful principles I want to bring to your attention uh, that are essential in us truly experiencing in a full way the will of God in our lives. You know, God wants to do great things in your life and mine. That's why... He sent His Son to redeem us. That's why He gave us new life in Him. Everything changed. And on that foundation, God's already at work and has been in our work, planning and conducting a great transformation uh, that will continue our whole lives as we continue to follow Him. Uh, The question that we need to ask is, are we ready to pursue His will? Assuming we are, here here is the first of four principles we need to put into practice if we're going to experience God's will in our lives. Count the cost. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. King David, as he defended Israel against the many enemies, had a large army. And within this army, he had a very small group, about 30 men, They were called David's mighty men, or the 30. These were fierce warriors. These were the tough guys, the guys that you would count on, you know you could count on, no matter what the circumstances were. And within this 30, there were three standout warriors, and they were called the three. You have to love short nicknames. And these three are introduced to us beginning in verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Yosheb Bashebeth, a Takemonite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Wow, what kind of person would attack, would raise his spear, as the Bible puts it, against 800? wonder what was going through... Yosheba's mind when he saw that mass of soldiers. I don't know for sure, but I think 
he must have realized the size of the group he was up against. He had to have weighed the circumstances. And it may not have been an immediate decision, but he decided God was able to bring a victory. And so he raised his spear. Counting the cost is something Jesus also taught. You know, he, when, he, when the crowds are following, he turned uh, on one occasion and cautioned them, telling them they needed to say no to themselves and to set aside some of the um, priorities that they had in their lives. That being a disciple meant choosing a very different life. He used the example of building a tower. Suppose you went to build a tower, he said and you didn't figure out if you had enough funds to complete it. And so there you go building it, you get the foundation, and then you run out of money, and you can't finish it. Then people will walk by and mock, saying, he didn't have enough to finish the tower. It was the biggest of disasters, because you would have spent all your money, all your effort, and you still don't have a tower. So we use that picture... And in following God, the Bible tells us we need to be prepared for the cost of that decision. You know, Melanie wanted to be an adult for a long time and make all decisions for herself. By our best reckoning, it started about second grade. (laughs) Now, one of the challenges as a parent is you get into this dance with your child because your goal is to turn out an adult at the end of the path. And you're starting with this youngin. And so as they grow, wise parents start to, you know, let children make decisions. You try to teach them how to make decisions, how to weigh options, and things like that. And, and the tricky part comes there in high school as they're getting adult bodies. You're trying to bring that mind and that decision-making ability uh, up there. Well, with some children, it's a, there's a little bit of pulling and hauling. Uh, in high school. Uh, Melanie was a delightful child, but she kept us on our toes. Well, the day came. She graduated high school, and as she was going off to college, we said, take the reins. Go forth and be an adult. Grateful that we were done with that. (laughs) Well, about a week later, uh, when we were talking to Melanie on the phone, as I was, she asked me, she told me, look, I've got to pick some classes tell me which ones to take. And I said, you're an adult. (laughs) Your decision to make. Now, we'll help you any way we can. We'll advise you. We'll give you any information that'll be helpful. But it's your decision. And I think she said something about, but I don't want to make the decision. I want you to tell me what to do. So uh, she had become a, and she now, and shortly after that, became a very fully functioning adult. Uh, but we can. It's possible for us to make decisions to say, hey, we want that, and to go after something when we haven't thought through all of the issues. And God wants to be upfront with what following him means. And he tells us, take up your cross, say no to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Not counting the... Uh, This is important because not counting the cost will leave us double-minded. We'll have uh, two different competing feelings and thoughts in our mind. And uh, our thinking 
won't be clear and straight. We won't have one goal we're aiming at. We'll have a couple of goals, and they'll always be competing in our minds. This also becomes important uh, in the, in the, uh, an important concept in the second principle, and that is one we never like talking about, enduring. Back to Samuel 2, 23, verses 9 to 10. So next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodo, and an, uh, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they defied the Philistines gathered at, at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines until his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Israel challenged the Philistines, uh, but it seemed like the Philistines responded with a little more force than they were prepared for, and so they retreated. Eliezer probably just kept dealing with the enemy in front of him and didn't back off. He just kept at it. Enemy after enemy came, and Eliezer fought. He fought until he was tired, then beyond tiredness, beyond weariness, beyond exhaustion. He was determined to fight until the Philistines gave out, or he did. He fought so long with such intensity that the muscles in his hand contracted and locked around the handle of his sword. And they had to pry it out of his hands when they came back. As remarkable as that accomplishment is, the greatest statement of the story is the Lord brought about a great victory that day. It's always through the Lord, but he uses us in our pursuit of the will of God in our lives. The way we will experience victory of the Lord is if we hang in there to the end. When we're suffering under a load of problems in front of us, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, spiritual pain, we become desperate to duck out to avoid the pain and find a way to end it, or at least numb it some. We can't help it. Uh, we're designed with pain avoidance, and it's a good safety measure for us. But sometimes, God trying to take us through that door to Christ-likeness, through that door to His will being fulfilled in our lives, to, to give us the victory, to give us the things He wants to give us, He places between us and that door a problem. His intention is that we go through it. Much easier said than done. But you know, the others returned, but it says they only came in time to strip the dead. The victory was not theirs. If we stay in it and endure, let the Lord do his work, we'll see the victory of God. If we stay in it, endure, letting the Lord do his work, we're going to see the victory of God. If we bail or shortcut the problem, we won't. Then we become a little bit like that person that built the tower. All the money and expense and effort gone, no tower as a result. You know that the testing of your faith 
produces perseverance, the Bible says. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, Julie had an experience and had um, a challenging time when her mother died, uh, trying to, a variety of circumstances, but sort of trying to find God in all of it, all the circumstances around it. And it was difficult. It was hard to watch her struggle with things. Uh, And I know many people have struggled with more things than that. We have a struggling congregation at this point in time. So many issues. But but she, and I I remember her sort of um, trying to decide whether to hang in there or not with it. She did. And uh, one of the things that came out of that experience, she came out of the other end, she came out with some convictions and some knowledge and a relationship with God that she hadn't had before. And also out of that, uh, uh, that struggle and pursu- uh, enduring that struggle uh, came her desire to write and speak. That was born out of experience, and that has changed the direction of her life for the last 10 years or so. We need to persevere so that when we've done the will of God, we have the victory. And God can get us what he promised. The third warrior of the three teaches us another principle. Take a stand. 2 Samuel 23.11. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. I don't know the story behind lentils. Nobody does. But perhaps uh, the Philistines had a habit of coming from time to time just to destroy the crop. Maybe this invasion happened year after year right at harvest time so the Philistines would steal the food. Or maybe just because they could, they came on a regular basis and caused havoc and hardship for Israel. Whatever the story, Israel's troops again left the field to the Philistines. And Shammah must have said to himself, no, not again, not this year. And he took his stand in the middle of the field and defended it. Again, we read the result. The Lord brought a great victory. You know, we think about applying that. The, the whole idea of taking a stand could be applied to things outside of ourselves. Like, you know, I'm going to do something about getting prayer back into schools. As good a cause as those may be, that type, I'm really not talking about those kinds of things. I'm going to suggest that there are very important stands we must take inside of ourselves. You know, our thought life, taking every thought captive. How about the quality of our relationship with God? Our attitudes. The degree to which I'm choosing at any time to be humble, patient, loving, good, self-controlled, or content. The lesson of Shammah 
Well, these are areas that we, we might fail regularly and habitually, about which we're tempted to say, hey, that's just who I am. That's the weakness I was born with. The lesson of Shammah is that we should not make excuses for these things in our lives. Changing them is part of our growing in grace and growing in Christ-likeness. It's all part of a process described by Paul in Ephesians 4. He says, you were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we don't put off. We don't make new. We're not made new in our minds. We don't put on. Well, all that equals status quo. It equals being who we are year after year after year. It means one year of experience multiplied by 30 years, 50 years, whatever. And that's the danger of not looking at ourselves and saying, not anymore here. I know a number, many years ago now, uh, I was way too quick to react to irritating things. Often I got an attitude and I'd say something. Uh, and there were plenty of things getting under my skin, believe me. I had to decide that I had had enough of letting irritations rule. That an irritation could decide how I was going to act as I walked through life. God calls us to be actors, not reactors. We're called to step out and be his ambassadors. So, uh, one day I sort of had to say to myself and God, with your grace, with God's grace, I'm going to handle irritations differently. And it begins today. And from that day onward, I never got irritated again. That's not true. The reason I picked this example is because it was many years ago. And I can tell you now, I can look and see some measurable progress, which to me is a pretty good victory. Nowhere near mastery. So as we begin to work placing our thought, replacing our thoughts and behaviors from the truths in the Bible, we're doing this. We're taking stand. We're taking our stand in this field. No, this is God's area now. All right, we've looked at principles one, two, and three. And there's one last story, and it's that story I let off with, um, and it's the fourth principle here. Uh, To have a disciplined focus. Let's go to 2 Samuel 23, 13 through 17. So we've just had a description of these three guys, how tough they are, what they were made of, the kinds of people they were, And it says, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors, the three, came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while the Philistines garrisoned in Bethlehem. So you have this invading army, and they've set up their headquarters, they've set up their shop by sort of taking over the town of Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. And so there they are. They're about 10 miles away. Bethlehem's about 10 miles away from the cave of Adullam. Well, it says that David longed for water one day and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink 
of water from the well near the gate at Bethlehem. And apparently that was overheard. And these three mighty men got together and they broke through the Philistine lines to get into Bethlehem. They stealthily drew water from the well near the gate, broke through the lines to leave Bethlehem, the area of Bethlehem, and brought this water back to David. They delivered it only to see David with a stricken conscience, the way uh, 2 Samuel tells it, pour out the water to the Lord. You know, David's reaction baffled me for years. I, I love the story. There's something intriguing about this story. There's a lot intriguing about these three mighty men. And I've wanted to speak on this for years. But I, I never knew why David poured out the water. You don't want your sermon to trail off with, yeah, and, uh, amen. Why did he do that? The men had already obtained the water. He says, I, far be it for me to drink the blood of these men. They'd already, they didn't spill their blood. They already made it. The water's here. It's been purchased. It's been, and it's being given as a gift to you. I never could get past why the men wouldn't be offended. Why? Uh, then I had a thought. I didn't really have the thought. But in our Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, uh, adult Bible study, adult Bible discussion, we were talking about Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. And something was said in that study that turned on a light bulb for me. And let me, let me share that with you. Let me present it. After fasting 40 days, what was posed to Jesus was to turn stones into bread. Now, he had been baptized by John the Baptist. Then it said he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. After 40 days, hungry? He was, it was posed to him to turn stones into bread. Instead, Jesus responded. He didn't do it. And he responded, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Interesting answer. Words aren't going to keep body and soul together. Why not make the bread and eat? It wasn't because Jesus just didn't. I mean, he did miracles, but not food and drink. Too pedestrian. Can't be true. He turned water into wine in Cana. He fed the 5,000 using five small loaves and two fishes. Couldn't be because eating food was something he was not supposed to do as the Son of God. We read a number of times that he sat and ate meals with his disciples. He had other bodily needs. He fell asleep in a boat because he'd been up all night praying. Uh, he got tired. And it couldn't be because miracles couldn't be used to benefit him. I thought about that. Couldn't be that because he walked on the water. That was not for anybody else, although there was a lesson in it for Peter and the other disciples, but it was to help him get across the lake. So why not? Well, in the adult study, 
from our discussion of Matthew 1, 2, and 3, uh, and our knowledge of sort of other parts of the Bible, we realize the Bible repeatedly stresses that Jesus was on planet Earth to do one thing. That was God's will. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus said, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Then the book of Hebrews says, Jesus said, in quoting from the Psalms, Here I am, I have come to do your will. And by that will, the writer of Hebrews says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we know what Jesus came to do. And we read that after he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tested. He lived a life dependent on the Holy Spirit. So what made turning stones into bread wrong is that they were not part of the plan of God at that moment. They represented something that was good in and of itself, but taking care of the body at that time was different from and distracting to the leading of the Spirit at that time. That's what I came to. I thought, okay, that fits. That sort of works. And so, think about David. He's serving God. He and the army are right now engaged in physical warfare, protecting Israel, fighting off enemies. Unfortunately, they couldn't sit in Jerusalem and pray, Lord, drive our enemies out of here. But when they stepped out to fight the enemies, what happened? The Lord brought a great victory. The Lord brought a great victory. And so on. So the Lord was working through that. But their mission, the will of God for them, was to go out and and do these things. So David, I have to believe, uttering in private or musing to himself, oh, I wish I could get a drink of the water from that well in my hometown. I'm so thirsty now, but I remember that water. The taste of it is so sweet. And thinking about these Philistines who were living over there, drinking that water all the time, he just thought, oh, if I could just have a drink of that, it would be so encouraging. And when these men went and did that and came back, it's like, how could I have been focused on a pleasure like that? We're all out here camping. These guys don't get to get water from their hometowns. It's not what we're about here. We're about God's will. We're doing this. This is a distraction from that will. Water's a good thing. The water from Bethlehem's a great thing. But it doesn't fit right now. And yet I made this happen. I think that's where the conviction came in. So here's David saying, I'm focused here That is a good thing, but just can't be part of this if I'm truly going to have that laser-like focus that uh, God's calling me to. Make sense? That's sort of of what I came to with that. And uh, the problem is, we think about application, that's really bad news for me and bad news for America. Because 
we are surrounded by so many things that we can enjoy and that distract us, even on a regular basis, much less when we're totally focused on one goal at a time. We have so much to enjoy. At what times and in what areas of my life have I been entertaining and indulging in things that take my, take my focus toward God that, that pull me away from that? Now, I'm not trying to say that enjoying a good meal is somehow inappropriate or that we should not be watching televisions or movies. Meal, televisions and movies. What I am saying is that we have to be sensitive about our lives and the mindset that we have to be sure our allegiance to the Lord, what he's calling us to do in that moment, is not about to be compromised uh, by something, even if it's a good thing. That we need to be sure our allegiance is to the Lord and our lives are dedicated to doing his will in that moment even if it means that we need to be pruning something out of our life. Maybe for that moment, maybe for that day, maybe forever. We just need to have that mindset to realize that's part of the process that we need to go through, examining ourselves. Well, we've looked at four principles. Wow, got behind. So sort of the biblical way I'd say that is the danger there is becoming what Paul calls a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God at the extreme. The danger of not realizing this principle, of not asking that question of ourselves, of not thinking in those ways. So we've looked at these four principles. Count the cost, endure, take a stand, and focus on God. We got them out of 2 Samuel 23, intriguing stories. Uh, please stand, and let's uh, close with prayer. Then we'll be done. Lord, we thank you for uh, men and women of God who've gone before us, whose stories are captured in the Old Testament and in the New Testament writings that encourage us uh, as well as challenge us and help remind us of uh, the goodness the grace that you have given to us, the kind intentions you have for us, and for the transformation that you're trying to do in us. Help us to not be obstacles in that transformation. Help us not be distracted constantly from your things. We ask this as we dismiss in your name. Amen.